Acts chapter 1. As you guys make your way back towards uh, the first chapter of the book of Acts, we had our introduction to this book uh, last week. And what we looked at is uh, Luke, our author, wrote about the things in verse 1 that Jesus began to do and teach. And what he was referring to there were the gospel message. It was the gospel of Luke specifically. But what we find is really the entirety of the gospel accounts are not the beginning, middle, and the end of what Jesus did. It was merely the beginning. The things that he began to both do and teach are found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And so when we arrive to the Acts of the Holy Spirit, you might recall I, I told you you can scratch out the Acts of the Apostles at the top because, in fact, the, the main character in this book is the Holy Spirit. And so we see in Acts this continuation of the work that was began by Jesus. I think it's important to point out as we look at Acts that this is about the work of Jesus. And uh, for that, I want to turn with you back to John chapter 5 because Jesus was very clear that he didn't come uh, just merely to stand around and only to teach. But in uh, John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said to them, his disciples, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. And so it was important for Jesus to make it clear, I came here to actually do things, to, to both do and to teach. That's what we just read there in Acts chapter 1 in that first verse. But he didn't just leave it there, that it was all about him doing all the work. But if you skip ahead just a few more chapters in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 17, uh, excuse me, verse 12, he says, Most assuredly I say to you that he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And so post-resurrection, this is what Jesus is talking about, that after he has gone off the scene, that he's going to actually empower his people to do works, but even greater works than what he did. And so what we find as we arrove, as we arrove, I think I made up a new word, as we arrived, uh, as we arrived at the first chapter of Acts, in verse 8, we find that Jesus didn't expect this work to be done by not giving them any tools at all. But instead, in verse 8, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that you shall be witnesses to me. And so this, this uh, drive to go out and be witnesses, to go out and do work, came with the power of the Holy Spirit. And you might recall, I mentioned that word power is a dunamos in the Greek. It's the same word that we get our word dynamite. Dynamite power is what Jesus promised to give to his disciples. And so this is the command of God to go out and do work, but to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus began to both do and teach these things. And what we find is that uh, throughout Scripture, important to note that uh, all of Scripture is connected. And so we're going to look at that some today as well, that, that from Genesis all the way to Revelation, what we really find in the work and the life of Jesus is a connection of Scripture. One of the catchphrases that I love is that the uh, New Testament concealed, excuse me, the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. That the Old Testament concealed is actually the New Testament revealed. That as Jesus comes on the scene, we have the, the revelation of Jesus Christ is really an, an unfolding, an unveiling of what was behind the veil of the New Testament. And so when we look at these things, what we find is that even the most seemingly benign passages of Scripture in the Old Testament really point back to Jesus. So I, I take you by way of example really quickly to one of your favorite books of all time, and that is the book of Leviticus. 
You guys get to Leviticus, and you're like, boy, I love to read about pages and pages of sacrifices. But what I want to point out to you is that each one of these sacrifices specifically point back to Jesus and the work that he would do during his ministry. So when we look at these four different gospel accounts, I've shared with you that each one of the gospels was written to a different group of people, but they were also written to show Jesus as a different sacrifice in each case. So in Matthew, for example, we studied through this for almost a year. You probably recall Matthew wrote to the Jews, to the religious people. And as he wrote to the Jews, what we find is that he wrote to a group of people that should have known the law of God. They had, they had been given the very oracles of Scripture. And so as the Apostle Paul, for example, goes to a new area, he would begin sharing immediately with the Jews before he went to any Gentiles. And he said the, the gospel is to go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, not because Jesus loved them more, but because they had the Bible. They should have known what he was talking about. So in this case, when we find Matthew writing to the Jews, when they rejected Jesus, they didn't reject him not knowing who they were rejecting. They intentionally missed the mark, which is precisely what a trespass is. A trespass is knowing what the right thing is to do and going, yeah, I don't feel like it today. Not going to happen today. And so in the book of Matthew, Jesus is essentially displayed as their trespass offering. He is there to cover the sin of their intentionally going against God. Now, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, what you find is Mark writes to the Roman audience. And the Romans were a fast-paced culture. I mean, you think about what they loved. The Colosseum, the Olympics, they were a go, go, go type of group. In fact, the key word in the Gospel of Mark is the word immediately. You see that word over and over again in his. He's got the shortest of the Gospels, but it's action-packed. I mean, it's the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie of the New Testament Gospels. I mean, it is one after another, and you're like, whoa, i got to catch my breath. But as Jesus writes, or as Mark writes to this Roman crew, what he's writing to is a group of people that didn't know the law of God. They had no concept of what the, the Jewish law was or the, the Hebrew Bible. And so for them, their not following after God was still a sin. I mean, they, they still had some conscious awareness. They had an idea of what they were doing wasn't right, and yet they didn't have the law. And so for them, they sinned greatly. And so in the book of Mark, we find that Jesus is displayed as their sin offering to make up for that. Now, if you fast forward to Luke, our same writer of the book of Acts, when you get to Luke, Luke is a Greek. He's writing to the Greeks. The Greeks love uh, intellect. They love theater. And they also love, if you've been through middle school ELA, they love mythology, right? If you remember back to those days of mythology, what did we always find? It was a battle between gods, lowercase g gods, and man. There was a split. They understood there was some type of division that happened between their gods and between mankind. And they were always looking at a way to relink this relationship because fellowship had been broken. And so in the Gospel of Luke, he displays the one that would relink the very perfect man, the thing the Greeks were after. And what we find is Jesus Christ became their peace offering or their fellowship offering, a reuniting back together. Now, finally, of the gospel accounts, we have the gospel of Luke. Luke writes to the entire world, the world at large. Uh, excuse me, John writes to the world at large. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so John writes to the world at large, and what we find in his account that's different than all the others is for seven chapters, almost half of his entire gospel, he writes about one week in the life of Jesus, the Passion Week. 
And he goes through uh, grave details of the suffering of Jesus Christ, where literally everything about him was used up. Every drop of blood, every sweat, every bit of water that he had, he literally, as my old football coach would say, he left it all on the field. That was Jesus. And so what he became, quite literally, was our burnt offering. The offering that would be given on the altar where nothing would be left as it was offered up to God. Our consecration offering. That's what we find of John. Now then, in the book of Acts, we have the the fifth of the uh, sacrifices that are there in the first five chapters of Leviticus. And as we arrive to Acts, we remember from last week, this was written to the foundation of the church. That for the church, what we see is, uh, this is Jesus saying, I'm going to empower you to go and do works, even greater works than what I did. And so as this word is written to the church, what we find is that this is likened to the grain offering, the only offering that was made that was from the work of the hands of the people. So the first fruits that was, brought, was to be brought there to the temple to be sacrificed, to be given up to God, and what we find is that Jesus actually fulfills this. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that here's, Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. The very work of their hands was offered up to God. And so what we find is that in these seemingly uh, obscure passages, even in the sacrifices that we don't like to read, that here's Jesus on every single page, in every place working for us. And so what we find is that in this, in the book of Acts, he's going to give us power so that we can get to go do works. That our works that we provide to the Lord are never a have to. That's an important thing to note. It is a get to Christianity. God is not standing over us with a club ready to whack us at any moment because we didn't do the right thing. But instead, as we realize just what he has done for us, the ways in which he has sacrificed for us, we cannot help but want to get to go and do works. Now, with that said, let's pick up in verse 12 of chapter 1. And then they, speaking of the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And so they've just seen the ascension of Jesus, and they now have been told by him to go to Jerusalem and wait. And interesting to point out is that Jesus sends them back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, and it is a Sabbath day journey. It is, in other words, within the distance that they were legally allowed to travel on the Sabbath. I think that's important to point out. Because Jesus did not ask them to do something that violated the law. So if the Lord has put something on your heart, I I want you to understand this, that he will always make sure it lines up with Scripture. If you feel like God has called you into something, yet it goes completely against Scripture, or it seems like maybe this thing doesn't quite line up with what God's Word says, I can assure you that is not Jesus speaking. He is all about things lining up to his Scripture, and he is also all about things lining up to The law. That means even the law of the land in this case. Now, I do want to point out an important caveat that any time law prohibits us from worship, there becomes a far different designation. And so when we look at the laws of the land, if it squarely goes in the face of the worship of the Lord, of loving on him and loving on people, then we have no choice but to go against the law of the land. But in this case, 
we see that this, there was no need for them to violate the law, but instead to just simply go back to Jerusalem, Jesus sends them back to a place where they would be able to obey the Sabbath rules. Now then, verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so here we see the 11 remaining uh, apostles that would be sent out, minus Judas Iscariot. They go back to Jerusalem, and it's here we're told that they prayed in one accord. That's an important thing to note, because if you remember the last time we saw these guys in the upper room, it was at the Last Supper, and they were all, the 12 of them, arguing over who was the greatest. I mean, they were having an argument. It, surely it's me, surely it's me. And yet, here we find them back in the upper room, and this time they're in one accord. And what's the difference? It's prayer. Prayer has a way of unifying people. It has a way of unifying relationships. In fact, what I've found is that you cannot be angry and continue to be angry with someone you continually pray for and pray with. And so I always encourage husbands and wives to pray together. I, I usually say, look, this is going to be awkward. It's going to be a lot like your first kiss. Nobody's going to know which way the head goes, and I don't know. Do you go? Do I go? I don't know. But get past the awkward, and what you'll find is the most unified relationship you've ever had because you've now connected on a spiritual level. There's unity in prayer. For us here as a church, we have prayer at 915 on Sunday mornings. I encourage everybody to come out. And what we will find is over the course of time, nothing will unify this body as much as people praying together. You cannot have dissension while you're busy praying for one another. Doesn't mean you agree on everything. Doesn't mean you see everything exactly the same way. But what it does mean is that in the spirit, we will be unified. The other thing we find about prayer as a group is it actually empowers God's people. And the reason it empowers God's people is, if we turn back to Matthew, where we just studied Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 says this. Jesus telling his disciples, he says in Matthew 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You see, when two or three gather together, and in this case they've got many more than two or three, Jesus is there. They have power because Christ himself is actually present and there with them. Now, not only is Jesus there, and not only are the 11 remaining apostles there, but also we're told in verse 14 that there were women and Mary, Jesus' mother was there, and his brothers. His brothers that we know of specifically would be James and Jude. These two men uh, are credited with writing two of our letters in the New Testament, the book of James and the book of Jude. These were half-brothers to Jesus that were there. But what's interesting about this is, during his life, these guys did not believe in him. In fact, uh, they thought he was a crazy person. We're told uh, in the Gospels that they went to Jesus to say, look, could you pipe down just a little bit? I mean, you're making a mess for the whole family. And so it's so easy for us, though, in our flesh to go, boy, why wouldn't they just believe in Jesus? And I was thinking about this uh, this week. You know how hard it would have been to be James and Jude when your brother is Jesus? I mean, can you imagine? Uh, Jesus never brought home an F. 
what in the world are you doing? Jesus never brought home grades that looked like that. A mom and dad, I wrecked the car. Well, Jesus never wrecked the car. How dare you? Why couldn't you be more like Jesus, WWJD? What would Jesus do? The opposite of you, little man. I mean, you can imagine the way that would wreck you mentally when your brother is Jesus. I mean, that's a tough one to, to come alongside. And yet what we're told, and I believe Jesus very much understood that relationship, that dynamic, is that he specifically went to his family, to his brothers, post-resurrection, to show just what the grace of God looked like. And so for James, I find him to be one of the most interesting characters in the New Testament because not only did he become a believer in his brother as the Messiah, but he also became one of the leaders of the New Testament church. We're told as the church is there in Jerusalem that James was one of the ones that was there on the front lines and what he was most known for throughout church history is prayer. In fact, he got the nickname Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer to God the Father, to Jesus the Son, that his knees were calloused. Because I believe as James saw the resurrected Christ, the thing that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt was what the grace of God looked like. God's riches at Christ's expense. What is grace? Unmerited favor. I did not believe until I saw him resurrected. And so this beautiful picture we get from uh, James and Jude gathering there in the upper room. Now then, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120. And said, in verse 16, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And so what we see in verse 15 is Peter stepping out as the leader of the early church. This early group gathered. Peter steps forward as a leader. And what I like about him stepping forward is look at the first place he turns. He turns to Scripture. If you want to see a truly dynamic leader in action, what he will do is, or she, is they will turn to Scripture before their own thoughts or ideas. That's precisely what Peter did. And he goes on in this 16th verse to point out that these things that happened concerning Judas, that these things actually had to be so, so that the word of God could be fulfilled. So they were probably sitting back talking. Remember, they're going to be in this upper room about 10 days. Jesus ascended on the 40th day. The day of Pentecost was on the 50th day. So they're gathered together, having discussions, no doubt talking about what had happened there with Judas and probably railing on him. I can't believe he betrayed Jesus. But Peter says, wait a minute. That was done so that God's word could be fulfilled. I think that's important to point out. As we get so upset about people who have wronged us or hurt us, you understand that God is bigger than that thing. That's ultimately what Peter's pointing out. Look, this is all a part of God's plan. There's something God is working out. And so if he can take this mess of Judas and actually work it out for the good of these people gathered together, then what could he do with my mess? Boy, I bet you he could work that thing out too. Now then, verse 16, I also want to note that Peter believed that scripture was inspired. He didn't say this was written just solely by David. He said the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David, that all scripture is inspired. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is inspired. That is important for us as a church to note because at the point in time when we begin to pick out our favorite verses and then eliminate those that we don't like, the next thing you know, that's a very dangerous road to go down because what we have decided is we are now the judges of the Word of God. I don't want to be caught in that spot. And so if you find yourself in a Bible study or in a place of worship and they begin to cherry-pick verses and tell you why you shouldn't have to listen to or believe others, uh, head for the hills because it is a very dangerous road to go down. Peter continues and he says, speaking of Judas, he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. In verse 18, and now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And so what we see here in scripture, uh, this is a little PG-13, is that Judas who had attempted to hang himself, that while he was hanging there from the tree, apparently the rope broke. He fell into this potter's field, and his uh, insides burst out of him. And so, what a horrible way to die for a very tormented individual. And you're welcome for that graphic detail. It's in the scripture, though, so there you go. All scripture is profitable. We just went over that. Somehow that's going to profit you today. I'm sure of it. But what we find is, as Peter is sharing this, He makes comment in verse 18 that this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. What he's speaking to specifically is the price that was put on the head of Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. As Judas realized that he had just betrayed innocent blood, he goes back to these leaders in Jerusalem. He goes back to the temple and he says, you've got to take this money back. And they refuse. They said, well, that's blood money. That one's on your head. And so Judas takes these 30 pieces of silver and he throws it into the temple and he runs away to kill himself. Now these men gather up the 30 pieces of silver not wanting to put it into the temple treasury. They take that money and they end up going and buying the potter's field, the same field where the blood of Judas was spilled. And so what I love about that, uh, that scene as we think about this is, is the blood of Jesus was literally used to purchase a field of broken pottery. That if you look throughout the Old Testament, that a pottery, a piece of pottery or a clay vessel is always a picture of our bodies. That the same 17 elements that make up a clay vessel, the dirt, the ground, make up you and I. And so what we find is that you and I are actually clay vessels. And so the blood of Jesus literally was used to buy a bunch of crackpots, <laughs> just like you guys, just like me like all of us. And so as we are marred and beaten and broken by this life and we feel cast off, this potter's field was an area where as a piece of pottery was broken, they would just take it outside and they would just throw it on the ground. It's of no use to anybody that Jesus bought this field and that as the great potter, he takes that broken pottery and with a little bit of heat, and a little bit of pressure, what he does is he takes things that everyone else thought were wasted and worthless and no good, and he reshapes them, and he reforms them, and he makes them into something that can be used for his glory. Far different scene when it comes to the great potter. Now, verse 19, and it, 
became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. And so the field is called, in their own language, Akeldama, which is the field of blood. And so what we see is the blood of Jesus was used to purchase the field of blood. And I like this because it's not just the field, it's the entire field. He didn't just specifically go and pick out jars and pots that he wanted to save, that he wanted to remake. He gave his blood for all of Akeldama, for the entire field of blood, for the entire world, including each and every one of us. Now verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let this dwelling place be desolate and let uh, no one live in it. And let another take his office. This is Peter continuing to pontificate. And so what he, he does here in this spot is he, he sees this in, in this uh, prayer that he's had with the Lord. He, he's there in this upper room. He's intently seeking God. And what God does is he actually gives him revelation to what is going on uh, in Scripture. He goes to two rather obscure passages in the Psalms. The first is from Psalm 69. The other is from Psalm 109. And he says that let this place be desolate and let no one live in it. Speaking of this potter's field, but let another take his office. And so Peter realizes, look, we're supposed to have 12 apostles. We only have 11 apostles. And what I like about that verse is it shows Peter's command of Scripture. This is a dude that just a few years before was a fisherman a foul-mouthed fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, now all of a sudden has enough command of Scripture to be able to take two obscure passages in the Psalms and realize that God is actually giving him revelation from this. Skipping ahead just a few chapters to chapter 4, this very thing would happen as Peter was giving a very impassioned speech there at the temple in Jerusalem. And in verse 13, what the these leaders of the temple there, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, as they've heard this impassioned speech of Peter and John, in verse 13 they said, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. I mean, they looked at them and they thought, what a bunch of rednecks. I mean, these guys, they speak like rednecks, they dress like rednecks, and yet as they heard this impassioned speech, as they heard their command of Scripture, they marveled. And the only thing they could come up with at the end of verse 13, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. So when we look at how in the world could they have any command of Scripture, did they attend seminary? I mean, surely they, some, they have some kind of in-depth biblical study. And yet what we find is in verse 13, they'd just been with Jesus. For three years, they'd been at the feet of the Master. And so I want to encourage you, if you desire to have a deeper understanding of Scripture, be with Jesus. <laughs> be around Jesus. Just allow him to open up Scripture, exactly what he's done here for Peter. And so he gets this revelation in prayer. He then gets an interpretation through Scripture. Verse 21, Therefore of these men who had accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John into that day, when he, speaking of Jesus, was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so Peter's now got the interpretation. One of these people with us has got to be appointed to this 12th spot. Somebody's got to be named an apostle. And so he gets revelation from prayer. He gets interpretation from Scripture. The issue is his application. In verse 23, 
and they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname was Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take a part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, and he might go down into his place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so what we see is now uh, Peter is trying to make uh, application after this great revelation that he's uh, been given, this interpretation of Scripture. He's done really, really well until he gets to the application part, and then he trusts his gut. <laughs> he trusts his intuition. What's his intuition say? Hey, we're going to have to cast lots. I mean, we've got to pick one of these two guys. We've got to cast lots, which is the Old Testament version of essentially rolling the dice. We're going to roll the dice on this baby. Let the Lord separate him out. Now, by doing this, Peter wasn't completely off in what he'd seen from the Old Testament. You remember the story of Jonah? Jonah's there uh, out in the sea. The sea's tossing this way and that. He's running away from God. And the fishermen on the boat, they know one, somebody has messed up with their God. And so they bring Jonah up from the belly of the ship, and they say, look, we're going to cast lots to decide which one of us is to blame. And the lot fell to Jonah. And then he gets thrown overboard. A similar thing happens with Gideon in Judges chapter 6. God calls Gideon as the deliverer from the evil Midianites. And so Gideon, being very timid, want to make sure this is what God has for me, he says, I'm going to put a fleece of wool out there for the Lord. And if in the morning, if the fleece is wet and all the ground is dry, then I'll know the Lord has commanded me to do this. And so the next morning, Gideon gets up, fleece is wet, the ground is dry, because boy... I want to make sure that's God. So he takes and wrings the fleece out. He puts it out again the next night, and he says, All right, Lord, if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then I'll know it's you. So Gideon, much like casting lots, wanted to make sure that it was, in fact, the Lord. But the interesting thing about this is when we go through the New Testament, from this point forward, we never see anyone mentioning casting lots ever again. Instead, in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 2, I'll give you an example of what they did and what we're going to be encouraged to do instead. Here in Acts 13, as the leaders of the early church are trying to decide who to send out on the first missionary journey, in verse 2, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then, having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them and sent them away. You see, from this time forward, they were told to trust instead in the Holy Spirit. Not in chance, not in rolling the dice, not in somehow thinking I can conjure something up from my gut or my, my past, but instead to trust that Jesus would do the right thing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what we find is that instead... What these men do is very much like what happened uh, to the Israelites in Numbers chapter 11. They give God two choices, right? In Numbers 11, uh, in this place, they're out in the wilderness, they're wandering around, and they've been given manna by God, or bread from heaven is actually what God called it. Uh, they looked out upon this bread from heaven, and they said, what is it? And so they called it manna, which is Hebrew for what is it? They didn't know what it was. But they'd been feeding on this manna now for some time. As they're there in the wilderness, they cry out to Moses, Oh, if we just had meat, 
Oh, if we just had some meat to eat, our bellies, they just need a little bit of protein, please. And so they cry out to Moses, and they say, boy, if we could just have some fish from the, from the sea, from the Red Sea. Or, or we've got all these animals around me, perhaps we should sacrifice an animal, and we could eat right now. But what we find is that instead God says, I have plans that you don't know anything at all about. <laughs> Only God could shift the wind and redirect quail towards this group out there in the wilderness. And by the way, they've got all kinds of other of a mess going on with them as a, as a group. But what they didn't understand is that God has unlimited options. For these men, they thought, if we just give God one of these two options, surely he'll pick one of them. They had limited God's options. In other words, they had limited their own options based on what they could understand. It's precisely what we see. And yet, what we find in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, what did Jesus tell them to do? He told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. Go and wait. Wait for further information. If they had only waited a few more days, they would have had the power of the Holy Spirit given to them. The call of God was not to go and pick another disciple or another apostle, but to go and wait on the Holy Spirit. And so as we close out, I want to just share with you because I know as a group, you love waiting. That you love to wait. I mean, American people, we love waiting. We're so patient when it comes to waiting. And here's the thing. And I think that one of the most underrated uh, worship singers of all time, Tom Petty, said it best. He said, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The wait is the hardest part, right? The wait, the wait is the hardest part. It's so very difficult for us. But here's the thing that waiting on the Holy Spirit actually does. Three different things. You guys are smarter than me. You can probably come up with more. I came up with three, the first of which is protection, that waiting on the Holy Spirit actually gives us protection from getting outside of the will of God. That most of the time, we, we want to do the Lord's will. In this place, Peter wanted to do a good job, and God gave him revelation. He then gave him an interpretation, but what Pete couldn't do, he wouldn't do, is he wouldn't just simply wait until God gave him the correct application. And so as a result, he got himself outside of the will of God. That's at least my belief. And it wasn't for God to strike him down or to smoke him in any kind of way, but, but the reality is he missed out on what was God's best. And this is so often what we do is we refuse to wait as Christian people. We miss out on what God's best is for us because we won't simply wait upon him. Instead, trusting in our gut, our intuition, this feels like the right thing, or I saw God do this last time, this must be the thing to do. And we go rushing head on, and we miss out on what he has in store for us. Because here's the thing, if they would have waited, if they would have waited just a few more days for the power of the Holy Spirit, what they might have realized is God had something far better in mind for the 12th apostle. There was a guy that was going to start persecuting the early church. His name was Saul of Tarsus, later became the apostle Paul. He wrote almost half of the New Testament books. 13 of the 27 books written by this one who Paul himself said was an apostle born out of season. That this was what God had in mind for their very best. And we never hear another mention made of Matthias 
ever again in the New Testament. So the first uh, thing that we gain from waiting on the Holy Spirit is protection. The second one we get is we get perspective. We can get God's perspective rather than just simply ours. And so a couple examples of this, the first of which would be uh, Jeremiah. Now, if you know anything about Jeremiah in the Old Testament, he was sent to prophesy to the nation of Judah at the time when they were getting ready to be overtaken, overran by the Babylonians. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar would come in from Babylon, and he would utterly wipe out all of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah had the dubious distinction of being the prophet for that. In fact, Jeremiah's ministry looked like him prophesying and preaching for 40 years to exactly zero converts. You think you got ministry problems? You got nothing on Jeremiah. He was called the weeping prophet in the Old Testament as he cried out for the people. And so as Jeremiah, no doubt, looked at his ministry as a flop, he gets thrown into prison. He's there in a dungeon in prison, and God tells him in Jeremiah 33, verse 2, he says, Thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Jeremiah, you have no idea what I have in store for you because the only perspective you can see is the prison that you're in. And Jeremiah would have no idea what would actually take place for God's people. He actually saved them in Babylon. But Jeremiah had no idea because all he could see were his prison walls. The second example I give you is that of Abraham. Abram, as he was called in the early portions of Genesis. And for uh, Abram, his name, literally translated, meant a father of many. And as God called Abram away from his father there, in uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, this is what God tells Abram. He says in verse 5, Then he brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look now toward the heaven. Count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Your descendants, Abram, are going to be greater than the stars in the sky. You're not even going to be able to count them. Father of many. The thing is, do you know how many kids Abram had at this point in time? Zero. He had no children. His name was Father of Many, to which, in just a few chapters, God is actually going to change his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And God's promise to Abraham was, I'm going to give you and your wife Sarah, I'm going to make you the father and the mother of many nations. Yet as God tells them that, do you know how many children they had? Zero. Abraham gets word at the age of 99 that I'm going to make you the father of many nations. It's so embarrassing if you're Abraham. Heartbreaking. Like, Lord, you called me to this place. You, you told me I was going to be the father of many nations. I'm looking up at the sky. I see all these stars, and yet I don't even have a son. And then at the age of 100, his wife gives birth. She's 90. He's 100 to Isaac, <laughs> the child of their old age. Such a funny thing it is that 100 and at 90, they name him Isaac, which means laughter. <laughs> they name him laughter. That's hilarious. Like God's going to give us a child. You see, the thing is, for Abraham, he needed God's perspective because he'd never read the book of Exodus. 
He didn't realize that in 400 years, God was going to part the Red Sea and two million people, descendants of Abraham, more than the stars in the sky, were going to cross that sea and head for the very promised land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He hadn't read the rest of the story. And so often, I think this is us. We, we don't know or understand. We haven't read the rest of the story, and so we're, we're confined to our prison. God, what could you do with this? Surely you can't work in this space and in this spot. And he says, you have no idea. You have no idea what I can do. My options are not limited. The third thing that we get from waiting on the Holy Spirit, even though it's the hardest part, is transformation. That in order to see transformation actually take place, it must be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament is this in Ezekiel 37. And Ezekiel's encouraged in this vision to actually prophesy to dry bones, to dead bones. Ezekiel is encouraged to prophesy. And, and here in uh, verse 4, And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and said again, He said to me, Prophesy to these bones, or preach to these bones, and say, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And then he's told after this that the dry bones begin to move around and, and flesh came upon the bones, and yet there was no breath. There was no life. They were still just dead. Until verse 9, And he, the Lord, spoke to Ezekiel and said, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, the breath of these slain, that they may live. This word breath is the Hebrew word ruach. In the first place, we see the Hebrew word ruach is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, right off the very beginning of the Bible. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but then what we're told in verse 2 is that in the Spirit of God moved across the waters of the deep. The word spirit there is ruach. Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, moved across the waters of the deep. And what we find is that Ezekiel, for the same Spirit, is told to preach to the Spirit, to the Ruach, to the wind, to the very breath that gives life to humanity. And what changes is that what was just rattling around dead bones becomes an army. <laughs> they become alive. They become literally transformed. The name, by the way, of the Holy Spirit in Hebrew is Ruach HaKodesh. So as we see Jesus telling them to go back and wait upon the Holy Spirit, wait upon the Ruach HaKodesh, what he's telling these 120 rattling bones, <laughs> these people that were essentially powerless there in the upper room, wait until you receive the breath of life. I'm going to give you the breath to go out and make witnesses, new witnesses. And to skip ahead in the text just a little bit, once they've received the power of the Holy Spirit, once they had been fully transformed, what they see is more transformation happening. In verse 41, and then those who received the word were baptized, and that day 3,000 souls were saved. 3,000 from 120 because of the Ruach HaKodesh. 
all because these people were brave enough, they endured long enough, they waited upon the Holy Spirit. So I want to encourage you as you look out there on your life and you wonder, why don't I see more transformation? Why don't I see these things taking place? I want to encourage you to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come down upon you and then be courageous enough to wait. Just to wait and watch and see what God can do as people around you are transformed. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the power that we receive from Holy Spirit. I would just uh, cry out to you today, Lord, please let the Holy Spirit come in here and rest mightily upon these people. There are many in here this morning that want so badly to see change and want to see transformation. They want to see things happen in their lives. And yet, because of what the world says, is we must go act. We must go act rashly and immediately and try to generate things under our own power. And the only thing that happens is dry bones rattling around a little bit, and there is no life. Father, please give us the courageousness, the stick-to-itiveness to wait upon you. Lord, we can do nothing outside of the power of your Holy Spirit. Please do that for this church. Please make us a church that is mighty in the Spirit, empowered by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Saturday was silent. Surely it was through. Since when has it Friday's disappointment, Sunday's empty tomb. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? This is the sound of dry bones rattling. This is a praise make a dead man walk. Open the grave, I'm coming out. I'm gonna live, gonna live again. Is able to save and deliver.
deliver and heal and restore anything that he wants to. Just ask the man who was thrown on the bones of Elijah. There's anything that he can't do. Just ask the stone that was rolled at the Praise, make a dead man walk again. Open the grave, I'm coming out. I'm gonna live, gonna live again. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for this morning. Um, if there's anyone that would like to pray at all, if you want to feel that kind of transformation, let me encourage you, uh, stick around. Let me pray for you. Let's pray together for that because he is very much in the transformation business, whether it's in you personally or with, whether it's in your family surrounding you. Let's just pray together as a church, and he will grow us mightily in the power of the Spirit. God bless you guys. Have a great week.